A desperate surgeon. No sign of the four-year-old. An issue. We hold great concerns. Cleo was taken. 18 days of asking, where is Cleo? What's your name, sweetheart? My name is Cleo. The time is 12.46am, Wednesday 3rd of November. Police force their way into a home in Carnarvon. This is what happens next. I got her. I got her. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Bobby. Come here. Come here. I got you, Bobby. What's your name? You're all right. What's your name? What's your name, sweetheart? My name is Cleo. Your name is Cleo. Hello, Cleo. That was the moment, 18 days after she vanished from her family's tent that Cleo was found. Now, the rescue was filmed on body cameras worn by detectives, and what we're listening to is the audio that was captured between police and the four-year-old. Yes. Cleo, my name's Cameron. How are you? Are you okay? We're going to take you to see you again, okay? Is that good? 18 days of meticulous police work that led detectives to a location in Carnarvon just minutes away from the Smith family home. I'm Natalie Bongiolo and welcome to this very special episode in which we'll step through the dramatic rescue and the aftermath. Joining us will be many of those you've heard in previous episodes as well as new guests including Flashpoint host Tim McMillan. Welcome all. Good to be here. Hi, Okay, let's start the night of Tuesday, 2nd of November, a matter of hours before Cleo's rescue. Ben Downey was in Carnarvon. Ben, was there anything to suggest that police were on the brink of this incredible breakthrough? No, there wasn't. The night before, I was talking to some of the detectives at the bar, and it would have been just after 6pm, and like all previous nights, uh, they were saying, just they had, that there still were no concrete suspects, that they had this mountain of information they were going to begin cataloguing and trying to find some patterns in. But at that stage, there really was no inkling or no concrete sort of theory firming up about where she had been taken and where she might be. But of course, it all changed around 9.30. I don't know the exact missing piece of the puzzle. Detectives have said multiple times that the phone records from those towers leading out to the Blowholes campsite were one of the most crucial parts of that puzzle. And Joey Catanzaro, at these times, when you're clutching at straws, that relationship between media and police is really significant. I think it's a really important relationship, and I think that it's probably taken a hit in the past couple of decades. But I just want to, if I could, I think one of the most significant criminal investigations here in WA is Eric Edgar Cook, the serial killer, the last man to hang here in WA. And I think a lot of people have forgotten that he was actually caught in the end because of cooperation between, actually, a crime reporter from the West Australian newspaper and the investigating officers. They basically, they kind of set a trap. They put it in the paper. They said that they were going to be searching this area after a couple had found a gun. They put fishing wire on that gun and had two officers sitting in the bushes waiting. And he read the paper. He saw it. He went back for the murder weapon to move it so that no one would find it. And that's when they got him. Now, in this instance with Cleo, I think that there was a level of cooperation that I certainly haven't seen or experienced for a really long time. And I'll give you an example. So pretty early on, I figured out that the senior detectives were going and having dinner and drinks at the Carnarvon Motel after they'd finished their shift and sort of sat down with them. And basically at the end of the night, I get an unofficial briefing, if you will. They'd explain to us what we'd seen and what we filmed them doing during the day. And then I'd say to them, what have you got for me tomorrow? 
And it got to the stage where they were saying nothing. We don't have anything else. We've collected all this data we need to crunch through. Millions of man hours of data that we've got to go through. But we don't know where we'll take it tomorrow. And we don't know if we'll have anything to do tomorrow. And I just say to them, help me help you. If you want to keep this story going for just one more day, if we can just keep it alive so there's a better chance you'll find Cleo alive, can you just give me something? And they did every single day because it wasn't about whether you wore a badge or a press pass. It really was just about finding Cleo. And Ben, as you mentioned earlier, at 9.30 on the Tuesday night, things were starting to move. And just a few hours later, four police officers, who are now known as the Fab Four, become part of history. Kristen, who were the Fab Four? Now, as we now know, a long list of individuals played a part in Cleo's rescue, from the task force Brodie boss, Commander Rod Wild, and the 140 officers on his team. And there were many police officers, including intelligence analysts, who were involved in finding Cleo. But the police who physically broke down that door and scooped Cleo up in their arms are now the famous Fab Four. That's Detective Senior Sergeant Cameron Blaine, Detective Sergeant Jason Hutchinson, and Detective Senior Constables Kurt Ford and Drew Masterson. So Detective Senior Sergeant Cameron Blaine was the investigating officer who's seen in the body cam, still suited up at 1am, repeatedly asking Cleo her name as she was carried out of the house where she'd been held captive. Detective Sergeant Jason Hutchinson was and still is the family's police liaison officer. He's a homicide officer who usually works on Cameron Blaine's team normally. Another member of the task force who was brought in from another area is Detective Senior Constable Kurt Ford. He's the officer who we saw only from behind in that initial body cam footage who was actually carrying Cleo and whose hoodie Cleo was very affectionately playing with. And there was also Detective Senior Constable Drew Masterson, who was another member of the task force. That vision of Cleo's rescue is like nothing I've ever seen before. And that's obviously the audio as well, which still, you know, I listen to it and I can barely believe it. Tim, honestly, if this was a movie script, you'd barely believe it, right? Oh, you couldn't have scripted it. You know, if you set uh, a bunch of Hollywood film writers down around a table and said, come up with something, they probably wouldn't have come up with something as powerful as that moment. It was just extraordinary to see. And I remember uh, being up there the next morning when the whole world knew that she'd been rescued. We heard the story of how she was rescued and we didn't have any of that audio at that point. And when it was finally released, everyone was just absolutely <laughs> floored by it. It was incredible. It was so incredible. And Tim, you spoke in great length to Detective Blaine. Let's just play a little bit of that. Yes. We had to um, hit the door pretty hard um, with the equipment that we had, uh, into forced entry into the house. Um, yeah, and then it, um, it all developed very quickly from there. Um, walking into the house, there was only one closed door. Um, that was a, you know, a, obvious to us as we walked into the hallway and um, went to unlock that. And, um, originally the guys thought it was locked and, um, and then it opened uh, and then to our surprise in a fairly brightly lit room uh, there was Cleo sitting in the, in the middle of the room. So she was at least sitting? Yes, she was sitting. In a lit room? Sitting in the lit room playing with toys. Wide awake? Wide awake. I mean Tim, I can't even imagine what that was like when they first laid eyes on Cleo sitting there wide awake playing with toys. Were you gobsmacked when you heard this detail? 
Look, I was. Going into that interview with Detective Sergeant Blaine, didn't really know how much detail he was going to be able to share with us. And it had been uh, a very, very long night and long day. You know, it was about 7pm the next night, on the Wednesday night, by the time that I spoke to him. And I really wasn't sure how much detail he was going to give us. But the way he described going into the house, as he articulated there, a lit room, she's sitting wide awake at 1 o'clock in the morning. And then he went on to say she was sitting there playing with toys. I mean, he just basically gave us a walkthrough of the house and what exactly he encountered, which the image of that I just found, yeah, gobsmacking, as you say. It was just, again, going back to the Hollywood script, (laughs) it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's how you would in a seemingly far-fetched Hollywood script, just the idea of this girl being all alone in a house in the middle of the night, wide awake, not distressed, not hungry, Mm. thirsty, screaming, crying, just sitting there all alone in a lit room in an otherwise empty house, playing with dolls. Extraordinary. And he also explained to you how he needed to confirm that, in fact, this was the missing four-year-old. One of the guys jumped in in front of me and, um, and picked her up, and, and I, you know, I just wanted to be absolutely sure that, um, you know, it certainly looked like Cleo. Um, I wanted to be absolutely sure it was her, so I said, what's your name? And she didn't answer, and I said, what's your name? Um, she didn't answer again. So I asked her a third time and then she looked at, looked at me and she said, my name's Cleo. Kristen, listening to the audio that we played earlier of that moment when Cleo says, my name is Cleo, it's four words we'll never, ever forget. Does it still give you goosebumps? Absolutely. I still feel overwhelmed with emotion when I hear that audio or see any of that footage. Even when I look at that photo of Cleo sitting in the hospital bed, it gives me chills. The whole development in this story, the fact that she was found alive, it's still so surreal and unbelievable in some ways. But I think it's a real visceral feeling of shock, relief and elation that'll never leave me. Well, the next thing that Cameron describes is the moment that they then break the news to Ellie and Jake. My colleague Jason Hutchinson sat in the back seat with Cleo and we discussed, you know, um, when do we ring and uh, let's do it right now. So, you know, as he, um, he put in the call and, um, yeah, Ellie picked up the phone and it was, um, um, oh, I've got someone here you might want to speak to and, um, yeah, it was just a, um, yeah, good moment. Tim, you spent time with Ellie and Jake and that gut-wrenching interview that they did to plead for information. Can you imagine what getting that phone call must have been like for them? Oh, incredible. And when we were um, doing that interview with Jake and Ellie 11 days on from her disappearance, Jason Hutchinson was actually the member of the Homicide Squad who accompanied them and sat in on the interview to make sure that everything went as it was expected to go. So I sort of spent a little bit of time with him then He's been so central to that whole investigation. So for him to be able to be the one to then communicate that to Jake and Ellie, I'm sure would have been immensely rewarding and satisfying to him. Yeah, you can't imagine it, can you? I mean, again, I think the way Detective Blaine described it there, it sort of took you inside the police car. For those in the car, a moment that they will never forget and all of the hard days that they will have done and will do in the future, it's moments like that that will get them through, I'm sure. You would have been almost fighting over the phone and who was going to make that call because (laughs) (laughs) that's a call no one was expecting to make and probably Ellie and Jake may not have been expecting to get. And remember for those guys too, you know, members of the Homicide Squad, typically it's a pretty grim investigation that they're following. They often don't end well and those sorts of phone calls are usually to deliver the worst possible news to people who are still hoping for a miracle. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of people did not expect this one to end well either. 
So you can just imagine the absolute elation that they would have been experiencing in that moment, uh, given that so many other times they would have had to call loved ones and deliver news at the complete other end of the scale. So when the phone rings, I know that Ellie had Jason Hutchison's number. So when he was calling in the middle of the night, you can imagine Ellie on the other end of the phone, seeing the phone buzz in the middle of the night and see that number pop up, she just would have been going... Oh my God! What, what's happened? What is this? Why is he calling me at this time? And, oh, and then to be able heart to deliver that miraculous news! Wow. Ben, what time did you get a call to say they've got her? <laughs> um, it was quite a bit later. It was about three, just after three a.m. that morning, because the police media release had gone out about five minutes prior to all the different news stations, and very rarely does a media release go out in the middle of the night or early morning like that. And there would have been a scrambling of resources on the East Coast because Sunrise, of course, it was after 6 then, so they were live on air as this news was breaking. And they'd called everyone, but they actually hadn't picked up the phone to myself and my camera operator, Nick. I got a call, and I count my lucky starts because my phone was on site, so the vibration of my phone on, uh, next to the, my bedside table in the Carnarvon Motel was enough to wake me up. And the person who actually called me was another camera operator, Luke Williams, who works at Sunrise. And he describes my state when I was on the other, <laughs> other end of the phone to him and as just this stupor, like, huh? What? <laughs> and, like, he was saying they found Cleo alive in Carnarvon. And I was like, they found her? Yes. Well, is she alive? And Luke says, they found her alive in Carnarvon. Oh, she's alive. Where? <laughs> my brain was very slowly catching up to this information. And then basically what happened after that, it was putting the phone down, rushing outside of my motel in my boxer shorts and slamming on the front door of my camera operator's room, getting him to wake up. And, you know, if all the police weren't out celebrating the fact that they'd found Cleo, they probably would have been coming into the Carnarvon Motel for trespasser or something because of the <laughs> amount of ruckus I was making. But then it was the mad dash because we knew that on sunrise on the East Coast, three hours ahead of us, they were on TV. So we raced there, no shower, just sharing a can with some deodorant and a bit of Listerine and then uh, we were up on air talking about it and in total disbelief of what we were saying we had the media release there from like you know the official source saying that they'd found her alive we had the uh, deputy commissioner Cole Blanche and quotes from him um, and playing grabs from him on air saying they'd found her alive and I was speaking the words but I definitely didn't believe it and I thought I'd be on an episode of Media Watch um, <laughs> in, in, in a week's time for, for reporting the wrong thing it just felt so surreal and then we just kept going like usually you do one live cross every hour or every half hour but for the next three hours it felt like it was one every five minutes and of course you're scrambling because while there's the mixture of elation you're also like well where has she been found we need to be at that crime scene where is clear right now is she at the hospital we need to get find out and talk to her parents so there's all these things going through your head so eventually after about an hour at standing outside the police station, like adrenaline, like pumping like crazy. Everyone was saying I was really cold on camera. Well, it wasn't cold. I was shivering because of all the adrenaline sort of yeah. pumping through my veins. Police escorted us to the property on Tonkin Crescent there in Carnarvon, which became sort of a media hub for the next seven days or, or even longer. Um, just describing every possible thing we could that left or moved speaking to everyone because it was basically we're talking on a true crime podcast now but it was true crime live to air so every small thing that happened whether it was 
a ranger arriving to take a dog out of the property so they could search it or whether it's neighbours waking up to the news at the same time Australia was waking up to the news. It was all very raw. Oh, it was extraordinary coverage. And not only was it happening live, but it was happening in this moment where our brains were actually struggling to comprehend what we were saying. This is your Sunrise colleague, co-host Nat Barr. You cannot imagine the relief of those parents after this, this long search and the trauma that those parents have been through. And Ben, you mentioned Cole Blanche. So back in Perth, Deputy Police Commissioner Cole Blanche gives this early morning press conference. We'll have a little listen to that. It's my privilege to announce that in the early hours of this morning, the Western Australian Police Force rescued Cleo Smith. Cleo is alive and well. Cleo was reunited with her parents a short time later. This is the outcome we all hoped and prayed for. It's the outcome we've achieved because of some incredible police work. So... This news is breaking around the country. It's breaking around the world. And what also gets released is that image that you mentioned earlier, Kristen, of little Cleo. She's sitting in a hospital bed. She's holding an icy pole, waving to the camera. And that, of course, goes viral. Yeah, now that is an image taken by the police media unit, which was released later that day. I think there was just this incredible hunger from the media and the public to see Cleo and know that she was not just alive, but well and happy and healthy. And I think that it was a very smart strategic move by police media to release that image because what that did was eliminated the need for photographers and media, I guess, to try and get their own image of Cleo, which would have been imaginably traumatic for Cleo at that early time. And did you jump straight onto Ellie's social media to see if there'd been a reaction from her? Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, as soon as I heard the news, I mean, I was woken that morning by a call from WA Police Commissioner Chris Dawson. He rang me. Um, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, straight away, um, I had a look at Ellie's Instagram page and she had posted what, to this day, is her final post about Cleo's case. It was an image of a breaking news alert which said Cleo Smith found alive and well after rescue and the words our family is whole again with a love heart emoji. So you can only, like you said, and like Nat Barr said, imagine the incredible relief their family must have been feeling that morning. Yeah, so beautiful. Ben, you were everywhere. You hit the streets. You were speaking to locals in Carnarvon. I just want to play some of their reactions. Oh, tears straight away. Couldn't help myself. <laughs> it's just so heavy. You can see it in everyone. Unbelievably wonderful. So Isn't it incredible? I can't, I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> Smiling and grinning. We all had tears this morning. The town should have a big party. <laughs> Elation would be the best way to describe it. And just walking around town, it feels like this cloud has been lifted. We've all been waiting for this day. Um, it's felt like a lifetime. This is something that, um, you know, you see in the movies. You don't see this in Carnarvon. Ben, it just, I don't know, it's like a tsunami of joy. What was it like being in that? Yeah, um, it was great on the ground as well because we're on Tonkin Crescent, which is not exactly the most welcoming place in Carnarvon. But even there, people were overjoyed and letting us come into their homes and talk to them where usually a large media presence, especially one that had come from another city, wouldn't would get maybe a more hostile reception. We were obviously working basically more than a 12-hour shift without stopping. We had 
the local people that ran cafes and you know, chicken treat and supermarkets and places offering to bring us down food for free and because we were delivering the news. There was this overwhelming sense of everyone wanting to pitch in and, and reward people for this overwhelming thing that happened. Because you've got to remember, for the past 18 days, Carnarvon really wrapped Jake and Ellie in cotton wool because there's a huge rumour mill spinning up and fingers being pointed unfairly, we now know, at Jake and Ellie saying they might have had something to do with it or they weren't being sincere in their interviews and all these kind of nonsense and vile rumours and things that are being spread. And the Carnarvon community was wrapping themselves around them. There are also the people out there searching around the blowholes campsite, volunteering their time. So this was not just elation that Cleo had been returned safe. It was a triumph for an entire community. Tim, you flew into Carnarvon and I cannot imagine how vastly mm. different the mood was compared to the last time you'd been in town. No, absolutely. As I mentioned before, it was about a week between interviewing Ellie and Jake and then going back up for the incredible news that she'd been found. And look, I was as shocked as anyone. My phone started buzzing at about six in the morning. It was actually going to be one of my days off during the week. And uh, when you see your news director ringing repeatedly at that hour of the morning, you immediately think it's not going to be great news. Of course, it turns out it was the most incredible news. But getting up there, yeah, I mean, look, Ben and Joe were there on the ground, so they got to see that initial wave of euphoria. But that was still very much in effect when we landed at about 10 o'clock that morning. We pretty much went from the airport, and you could feel as soon as you landed on the ground, you know, even the airport staff, everyone. It was the only thing that anyone was talking about. And then going from there to the police headquarters, which was, you know, swollen in number from all of the officers that had come from Perth and from Geraldton and from other places to help out on the ground there. You could just feel it had been an exhausting 24 hours or so, but they were just running on pride and <laughs> adrenaline and relief. I remember one moment the press conferences were happening right in front of the main doors into the police headquarters there in Carnarvon, and there was one of the missing posters that had been up in that window for, for weeks. And at one point, an officer just very purposefully strolled out and slapped found right across that poster. He didn't say anything, and he just came out there, but he really firmly planted it on the window. You could just really sense the pride that they had just achieved the most amazing outcome for Cleo and her family, and I think that was reflected all the way through the town, and that wave of euphoria just carried on for a good couple of days. And, of course, it wasn't just locals who were euphoric. I mean, the international media by this point in the day was in an absolute frenzy, and especially in the UK, because there were the comparisons being made over there between Cleo's case and that of Maddie McCann. So for BBC journalist Laurence, it was a really unexpected outcome. Oh, my God, such relief. You know, it's true that you do invest emotional meaning in a story like this. What was the mood in the newsroom like? When we talked about it at the uh, editorial meeting, we were Zooming together. We were all like, yeah, yeah, we've got to do this story. It's good news. It's such a relief. People were happy about it. There's no doubt about that. As journalists, particularly as journalists who cover the world, <laughs> we have our share of atrocious news day in, day out. When you get good news, it does lift the mood. It, it, there's this moment of, wow, at least at last something that we can be happy about. And not just in the UK, newsrooms around the world were doing the same. Australian police call it the miracle they were hoping for. We're starting with the story dominating the headlines, and it's that of Cleo Smith, the four-year-old girl who went missing 18 days ago in Western Australia. She's bound, she's been found safe and well. Thank goodness for uh, oh, uh, a happy ending. We all need, uh, all need some good news, and that really is fabulous to hear.
There's huge news on climate change today, but we're going to start with something that has a happy ending. Cleo Smith has been found safe and well. Now, extraordinary story. Missing four-year-old Cleo Smith has been found alive and well after disappearing from a campsite in Western Australia. Well, reporter Ben Downey from Channel 7 uh, is there in Carnarvon. I mean, what a, an extraordinary story. Everyone was just expecting the worst. So, Ben, that's you doing crosses to local news, national news networks, international news networks. What was that like? I mean, it must have been a pinch yourself moment, I think. Yeah, um, it's very rare you get to stand outside a crime scene and report good news. And certainly uh, you got that sentiment from all those grabs there of all the different reporters around the world. And on such a, an important story to have your name attached to it, it's a selfish thing that all journalists sort of experience but i can't deny that it was incredible being able to deliver it to an international audience and yeah just felt pride really as an australian but also like it's as much as great as it is to speak to those international organizations and show that not only the great work of wa police but the excellent work of this tiny town and give character and give life to what otherwise would just be a normal headline it's also good to sort of speak to some of the local stations because what you've got to understand is the marketing department for Channel 7 gives your phone number out to bloody everyone. So my phone was practically unusable the entire day because you just get phone call after phone call after phone call. Sometimes, like, it just it's a matter of scheduling. You can't change scheduling on some, time, so on some things. So if you're locked in for a cross to the BBC, you have to say sorry to Good Morning America. But, if you know, you can't go back on the word. So if... You're locked into a radio cross to local news in Broken Hill, then, well, I'm going to also bring the good news to that corner of Australia. And so people from all different walks of life and all perspectives, speaking to an Irish radio station, could barely understand a word they said. I think they got the message from the elation in my voice, but truly a moment that I don't think I'll ever experience anything like that again. And it was just, yeah, incomparable. It would have been one of the most demanding days, but also a highlight, I think, of your career for many years to come. We mentioned in a previous episode how government officials, including West Australian Premier Mark McGowan, he learned of the news by an early morning text and a photograph, that photograph of Cleo. Also, Police Minister Paul Papalia, he was another person who was woken in the middle of the night. Look, when you get a call from the Deputy Commissioner in the middle of the night, it's not normally good news. So that was a wonderful, a wonderful surprise. Something that, uh, yeah, I'll remember always. Incredibly uh, positive news. What was your reaction when you got that news? Oh, yeah, I was ecstatic, but, uh, yeah, it was the middle of the night, so it was a little, <laughs> bit, a little bit blurry, but I uh, was woken and, and answered, and my wife could hear the other side of the conversation, and so she heard very shortly thereafter, and I tried calling the Premier to notify him, but he got the message he'd been... I think he'd received a few calls in the middle of the night, so... Uh, he got it pretty much shortly after me. I wonder if your wife let out a whoop. <laughs> we were both very, very happy and, and quite dumbstruck that it had happened. It was just such good news. Yeah, totally. Very uplifting. We should all be very thankful we've got such a professional and capable Western Australian police force. And I'm very pleased to see that that was recognised everywhere. Western Australians, I've been informed by police that <laughs> being commended and congratulated and thanked by people all over the state and that's a good thing. 
And for all those journalists who maybe weren't there on the day, but they had spent some time up in Carnarvon, they worked really hard around the clock, people like Jackson Barrett and Joey Catanzaro, who had spent almost 18 days there, they just talked to us a little bit about what that phone call was like for them as well. I'd been back, I want to say, maybe a day, and I'm exhausted and I'm sleeping. It's the early, early hours of the morning and the phone rings. And I just straight away shot up in bed and I'm looking at the phone and I didn't want to answer it because I thought they're going to tell me that they found her and that she's dead. Mm. And I really didn't want to answer that phone. But I made myself reach across to the bedside table and I picked it up and I answered it. And it was our chief of staff, the Seven News Perth chief of staff, Dale O'Neill. And all he said was, mate, they found her and she's alive. And I, I, not, I mean, I've been doing this for a really long time. I've worked in some pretty crazy places, war zones and disaster zones, and I've seen a lot. But I'll tell you what, that was a real moment. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I <laughs> He said, we, we're going to want you to jump on a plane. And I said, I've never been so happy to come into work in my life. Jackson, where were you when Cleo was found? I was at home in Bunbury by this stage, so back to normal duties at the Southwestern Times. And I woke to a call from my mum and she goes, they've found her. And being, you know, freshly awoken, uh, I wasn't 100% sure what she meant, but sure enough, it was Cleo and I flicked on the news and the benefit of working in a newsroom is that you can jump in there and, and immerse yourself you know, all day. So obviously having that little bit of a connection to the story, uh, it was an interesting feeling because I felt, you know, I'm thousands of kilometres away by this stage, but felt intimately involved with the story. So yeah, it was absolutely thrilled and I don't think I switched the TV off for pretty well. <laughs> 24 hours, it was fantastic to see and the perfect end to a pretty harrowing story. Also thrilled was Flashpoint Sandra Di Girolamo. Sandra, how did you get the news? I was actually on Rottnest Island on a family holiday with my husband and my kids. And, you know, kids wake you up pretty early in the morning. So I got woken up at about five o'clock and turned around and had a look at my phone. And I remember just springing out of bed (laughs) and saying to my husband, they found Cleo. And he just broke. And I kind of followed it up with alive. And then he's just gone, oh, what's going on? I'm, by this point, bawling my eyes out, <laughs> feeling so emotional because I felt so connected to that family when we'd done the interview a little bit earlier. So I felt so connected to them. I cried and cried. My kids came running in the room and said, Mummy, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said to them, oh, you know that little girl that Mummy's been talking about where well, they found her? And my kids just thought I was crazy for crying. crying. But I I was absolutely, I was so emotional. And, you know, spent the next little while texting the people who I knew were quite involved with the family, whether it was the police who were there that day or or others who I knew were connected. And I suppose I couldn't believe it. it. It was the best possible outcome. And if we're honest, it's not the outcome we thought. Kristen, so for legal reasons, we can't say a lot, but a 36-year-old man was then arrested at virtually the same time that Cleo was found. Yeah, well, Terence Kelly was arrested about an hour prior to Cleo's rescue. So if we just go back to the previous day, November 2, that was actually Melbourne Cup Day. And it was very late on November 2 and into that evening when police, information presented that needle in the haystack late on that Tuesday night and once police had received that piece of information 
rapidly snowballed and resulted in the discovery of Cleo. But before Cleo was rescued, Terence Kelly was arrested. Police, in a very dramatic fashion, police had swooped on him. He was only a few kilometres from his home where Cleo was locked inside his house and police had surrounded him in his vehicle on Robinson Street, so not very far away. From what we understand, there was a bit of a high-speed chase at first and then the police cars had pulled Terence over and there were a couple of female relatives inside the vehicle with Mr Kelly when he was arrested. Apparently, he did tell police that he didn't know what they were talking about when he was questioned about Cleo. Ben, when did you first see the accused? I was still at the crime scene, but what you've got to understand is when there's such a large story uh, for people who aren't inside the media, all the media organisations will enter what's called a pool arrangement. So Channel 7 and all the other affiliates and you know other competitors of ours will all share every morsel of vision and audio recorded so everyone can capture this from every angle. And so it was actually seven news cameraman, Simon Heidzik, who's one of our best camera operators. Terence Kelly was being transported from the police station, which also doubles as a watch house and a court and a correctional facility, to hospital. And Simon, the camera operator, raced up and put his lens right up to the ambulance and managed to do it in a fashion so it actually looked through the heavy tent and you could see Terence Kelly in there, um, obviously beside some paramedics. And that's when we had our first glimpse of this person. We obviously spoken to neighbours and they told us The only thing was that he was a quiet individual. He was unassuming. So every small detail we had about him was incredibly important. And it was illuminating to see, oh, yeah, you know, this was his description. Um, Obviously, he's been taken to hospital for what at that stage. It wasn't clear. But as the day evolved on from them, we got a better picture. He continued to be interviewed by detectives. Charges still weren't laid against him. So we really hadn't had any idea of what Cleo had been enduring during her 18 days there. We weren't sure if she'd spent the entire time at that home or whether she'd been moved around. We weren't sure if Terence Kelly was acting alone or if there were other culprits out there. So while police were confident that there wasn't any danger to the community, we were always on edge thinking, if he's going through an interview right now with police, there very easily could be another person out there that might have aided him during this time. There might need to be another arrest they made. There might be more people out there. And so even though we've been experiencing the elation relief of Cleo being found safe, we're very much on edge and unable to relax. Because at any moment, depending on what Terence Kelly said to police during those interviews, we could be having to race off elsewhere and cover something else. So, And it was just a giant effort of marshalling resources and cameramen from each individual network and journalists and share information in a fashion which rarely ever happens. It was a rare effort of camaraderie around media, which uh, we're not used to. And probably won't repeat again <laughs> anytime soon. But yeah, it was uh, the foot was certainly on the gas pedal that entire time. As the day went closed down and our final reports were going out just after 6pm uh, WA time, we still hadn't had any charges. But yeah, our coverage just sort of for that first day definitely reflected more the what we've covered already, the elation of Cleo being found safely. And then we moved on to what extra details we found out about Terence Kelly up to his court appearance uh, after he was charged, I believe, about a day and a half after his initial arrest. And we heard about basically that kidnapping charge and some of the stuff he said inside the courtroom before, well, arguably the most hectic thing, which was Terence Kelly being transported from the police station down to Perth to Hakea Prison. 
Yeah, and that court process still has a long way to play out, which is why there are certain things that we can't talk about at this stage. But this is what the man who led the task force had to say the day of Cleo's rescue. The nature of the work we do, um, it's the homicide squad, so it's not a good outcome. So, But... Um, to have the outcome that we've had today, the police officers, all the officers, all, all of the all of the people involved in the task force, um, you know, they were driven. They really um, had focus, really um, could see. They didn't give up hope that we were going to get get the outcome. We we're going to find out what happened to to Cleo. A lot of them haven't had a day off since uh, she went missing. Worked long hours every night. So, and that was just the hard work that had to go in to actually come and get this. But. Oh, it's been a fantastic fill-up of the team. It's just been magnificent. Tim, you were broadcasting live from Carnarvon that night and just listening yes. to Rod Wilde there, he actually does sound tired. Is that what... Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> they were absolutely shattered, chatting to Rod and also Cameron Blaine inside the police station. Look, that whole workroom in there, they were some seriously exhausted individuals in there, but look, still going... I think they were being fuelled by all the cakes and biscuits and treats that the locals had delivered to the police station for them. Surprisingly, no donuts. I did joke about that, but they kind of... uh, (laughs) Every other kind of sweet treat you can imagine. There were piles of them. There were bunches of flowers there. There were cards. There were thank you notes from little kids, from adults, from whoever. It was just this mound of them inside the police station there in Carnarvon. But, yeah, look, I felt like... We'd kept Rod and Cameron up well past their bedtime. <laughs> they were seriously ready for some time on the pillow, that's for sure, because they were absolutely exhausted. But uh, as I mentioned, just being carried along by that sense of relief and pride that a job had been uh, done just so well. Yeah, and the elation really didn't stop that evening after Tim and I had finished uh, the news. We went to the Carnarvon Motel with a cops have been hanging out for the past 18 days and you've got the police commissioner with his credit card at the bar and just free-flowing celebrations with all the police there in a very sort of non-formal setting and something that we're certainly not used to as journalists all journalists and police play a game of cat and mouse a tongue-in-cheek version at least where you know they obviously want you to broadcast certain things to help their investigation and you're obviously pressing them for information and sort of you both know what's going on you're both think you get any upper hand and but very much only one person's going to walk away the victor this night though that had completely dissolved everyone was happily sharing anecdotes and being open and forthcoming with information there's a lot of backslapping going on and you know a lot of celebration and jokes the police commissioner chris dawson paul pavalier we've heard from him as well and um you know rod wilde and, and some of those guys they're incredibly straight-laced people they're you know shine their shoes every morning when they go to work it was really, really humanising to see that wall um, had been broken down. Uh, such was the power of, uh, of the story that was unfolding in Carnarvon. And, um, yeah, another cool anecdote um, that we don't often get to share and doesn't make it into news reports very often. I mean, you can understand why those usual protocols were just really being thrown out of the window. And some of the expert commentators, people like criminologist Xanthi Mallet, she was saying this is actually unheard of. Well, I mean, I have spoken to lots of people, as you can imagine, about this case. Lots of investigators, police, psychologists, all sorts of people. And no one has seen anything like this. It's an outlier in every way that there is, in the best possible way. Certainly, the data suggests that when a child is taken by 
an acquaintance or a stranger, the likelihood of them being found alive diminishes very quickly. We're talking within three hours, you know. So when we stretched into 24 hours and then 48 hours and, and Cleo hadn't been found, I was certainly very concerned at that point that the outcome was not going to be good. And every investigator on that task force would have known the stats as well as me. So when you do get a positive outcome and the child is physically unharmed, this was a total shock to me and I couldn't have been happier to be wrong <laughs> about what I expected. And actually, as a learning curve, it was important for me because in my head, there were logical scenarios that are played out by the history of these events, what we know happens in these kind of scenarios. And this just didn't fit any of those patterns. And I think that's really important and goes back to what we were saying about investigators can't afford to get tunnel vision because even though you may know the data you may know what is likely sometimes fact is stranger than fiction and this is an example of something i doubt we will ever see anything like this particular pattern of events again because it is so unusual and it just reminds you keep your mind open well, we've only seen fleeting vision of Cleo and her family since then. It won't be the last we see of them. It certainly won't be the last we see of the accused. Thank you all for your recollections today and thank you for joining us on this extraordinary journey. For more information on this case, head to thewest.com.au forward slash Cleo. Bye for now. My Name is Cleo is recorded in the studios of the West Australian newspaper. This podcast is produced and edited by Kate Ryan and hosted by executive producer Natalie Bongiolo. Audio clippings provided by Channel 7 and WA Police.